Free Thinkers. I'm Mickey Z, and I welcome you to Post Woke, the New York City-based podcast where we practice intellectual self-defense. Recently, I was listening to the Bob Dylan song, It's All Right, Ma, I'm Only Bleeding, when a particular line jumped out at me. It had to do with people being bent out of shape by society's pliers. This colorful concept got me thinking about the many people in my life, past and present, who are clearly bent out of shape by society's pliers, and how many times I've fallen into that category. After all, it's sort of a default setting in the culture that we've all agreed to uh, live in right now, and I go much more deeply into that in the next section of this podcast. For now, I'll tell you an illustration of this concept that came to mind while listening to Dylan was all the times in my life, my adult life, when I've been waiting for and then riding on an elevator, particularly in a large, crowded New York City building. In this setting, adults behave in such a strange way. We line up for the elevator. We push the button, even though we know everyone else has already pushed it, of course. We do not make eye contact with anyone and never speak to each other. We just all agree to stare upward at the lighted indicator that lets us know how close the elevator is. When it finally reaches our floor and opens up, another odd, strange dynamic kicks in. This reminds me of what happens on the subways 24 hours a day. People start pushing their way out as people start pushing their way in, and nobody gives an inch. Very, very New York, but perhaps elsewhere too. It's very antisocial, but it's also irrational because even if you are a misanthrope, logic tells you that if you move out of the way, let the people out, there'll be more room for you to get in, but somehow we can't bring ourselves to do it. Eventually, we get in. We push the button for our floor, we turn to face the front of the elevator, and our eyes dutifully go right up to another lighted indicator. We pay the most intense attention to these lights changing until we get to our floor, where we could step off and apparently get back to normal, whatever normal is. Now, my line of thought kept going where I was imagining that any any situation in which I was in dealing with people, adults on, a, on an elevator, what if someone could transport all of us back to childhood? Everyone on that elevator is suddenly the three or four-year-old version of ourselves. And they placed us, and we don't know each other, but we get placed in a room and the person who placed us leaves and we're left in this room without any toys or games. They leave, they come back. You can almost guarantee, I mean, almost guarantee that the kids will have invented some type of game. They probably know each other's names. Sure, there might be some disagreement because kids can get like that. But in general, the kids will behave as we are hardwired to behave. They will create a community. They will interact. They will get to know each other. And they will put the adults to shame because in, except in cases of extreme examples like abuse or trauma, kids in general are human beings that haven't yet been bent out of shape by society's pliers. Now, how did we get to this point? I'm going to give you two examples that are unexpectedly based on email lists that I'm on. First of all, there's a list called Notify NYC, 
And this is primarily for anyone who lives in New York City, but anyone could sign up. And the idea is extensively, it's for people who live in New York City and want to keep up to date as to what's going on. I signed up early on in the whole lockdown thing just to keep myself up to date as to what was happening. But I've stayed signed on because I am utterly fascinated by the low key level of programming going on here. There are too many examples for me to go into, and I think I may write an article on this topic, but I'm going to just share a couple from January. Here on January 16th, I received an email from Notify NYC in that the New York City Emergency Management Department had issued a travel advisory overnight for potential winter weather. The forecast was 0.5 inches of snow with a little bit more rain and winds that could go to 20 or 30 miles per hour. And the city was warning us that we were advised to limit travel and stay inside. And if you must travel, exercise caution. And the list goes on from there. Check on friends, family and family and neighbors and so on because, because it was so dangerous. A half an inch of snow. About a week later, we got a larger snowstorm, which, and of course, we got another advisory, which told us that we would get six to nine inches of snow. And again, it was use caution when walking, charge your cell phones, turn refrigerators to a colder setting, and the list goes on. Now, I don't want to sound like one of these back in my day type of people, but I have lived through more New York City blizzards than I could possibly remember. And I have a really good memory. It's only relatively recently that we have been inundated with this um, infantilizing uh, effect where the tiniest little inconvenience is blown up by mainstream media and now by officials via email that we get constant, constant notifications that we are perpetually at risk, and we must rely on the powers that shouldn't be to take care of us. The second email list is one that I'm on as a podcaster. It is a free e-list that introduces me to people who are looking to be guests on shows. So I look very carefully to see who's out there, and then introduces me to a list of shows that are looking for guests. And what never fails to jump out at me is that at least eight out of 10 of the guests or the shows that are on these weekly emails are very much business, finance, money related. I'm scrolling through one right now as I'm talking to you, and it's like a marketing and advertising professional, a solopreneur, whatever that may be, a brand stylist, an award-winning entrepreneur, a professor of executive health, um, an entrepreneur and education expert, a business-to-business digital marketing expert, somebody that is real big in marketing um, artificial intelligence, a coach for business owners. And I think by now you get the idea. So it makes me think of how many podcasts, not to mention how many TV shows and magazine articles and internet articles and so on and so forth, um, enforce this concept of, I guess you would just have to say, capitalist conformity like we it's like this is the past out we scare the hell out of you through now particularly in the last two years because of the whole lockdowns and 
uh, so-called pandemic. But then with these notify emails, we scare the hell out of you about a half an inch of snow. And so what what should we do about it? Well, conform. You know what what's going to keep us safe? Be like everyone else. Make money. Worship businesses. Worship CEOs, and so on. And it leads us into a mindset where we wind up bent out of shape by society's pliers. Now, as I said, the next section of this podcast, I'll go more deeply into how we are being impacted. But since I opened up this little opening rant with a Bob Dylan quote, I want to end with another one from Masters of War to just speak back to the people who are trying to control us, the people who are trying to take advantage of us, to manipulate us. And this is Dylan singing in Masters of War. Let me ask you one question. Is your money that good? Will it buy you forgiveness? Do you think that it could? I think you will find when your death takes its toll, all the money you made will never buy back your soul. I'll be right back after this word from our sponsor. Hey, Mickey Z here with a few messages before we get back to the show. I'm asking you to become a paid subscriber to Post Woke. To do so, it's very simple. Just go to mickeyz.substack.com. The link is in the show notes. And there, for just $5 a month, less than 17 cents a day, you can support what I'm doing and get a steady flow of podcasts, articles, and other content, including perks that are available only to paid subscribers. So I thank you in advance for making that commitment. It really makes a difference. In addition, if you'll scroll through, scroll through the show notes, you'll see that I have a link in there for the project I do to help homeless women in New York City. Your support is most welcome. There's a link in there for a very cool post-woke podcast t-shirt to let people know what your favorite podcast is. And there's also a link in there for my NFT digital art photography. If you're interested in non-fungible tokens as a collectible, please click that link, check it out, and maybe maybe buy yourself a collectible work of art. So on that note, thank you again. And most importantly, please consider becoming a subscriber at mickeyz.substack.com. And now let's get back to the show. All the money you made will never buy back your soul. Fact number one, chronic stress can lead to an impairment of cognitive functioning. Fact number two, manipulative abuse can also lead to an impairment of cognitive functioning. When a human being experiences ongoing anxiety, their prefrontal cortex will generate increasingly higher levels of cortisol. Cortisol is a stress hormone that helps us deal with threats and danger. If stress, real or perceived, becomes chronic, we can get stuck in this state of high alert. The brain cannot differentiate between real and fake news. It will initiate and sustain the body's stress response for as long as you feel anxious, tense, worried, or scared. For some examples of ongoing anxiety and chronic stress, consider these facts of life in the land of opportunity. The overall 2021 poverty rate was 13.7% of Americans. 78% of American workers are living paycheck to paycheck. Roughly 30 million Americans are without health insurance. Americans collectively hold about 
$81 billion in medical debt. Approximately 325,000 Americans age 12 or older are sexually assaulted each year, about one every 93 seconds. As for those under 12, one in five girls and one in 20 boys is a victim of reported child sexual abuse. Keyword, reported. The top three causes of death in the U.S. would be mostly preventable in a society that included economic stability, access to quality health care, protection of the environment, an emphasis on healthy eating habits, and even a modicum of humanity. Instead, each year, heart disease kills about 650,000, cancer kills 600,000, and the third leading cause of death is medical error taking out at least 250,000 Americans per year. The powers that shouldn't be test their corporate medicines and procedures on us while granting themselves immunity from liability. According to the American Psychological Association, 63% of Americans reported that the future of the nation is a significant source of stress. 62% were stressed about money, 61% were stressed about work, 51% were stressed about violence and crime, and 43% were stressed about health care. 56% of the respondents said that the mere act of staying informed by following the news causes them intense stress. Three out of four Americans reported experiencing at least one stress symptom in the last month, and this survey was taken before the pandemic and ensuing lockdowns. Prices go up, rents go up, the number of billionaires goes up, everything goes up except wages and quality of life. I could go on, but I think you get the idea. Everyday life in the home of the brave, by definition, keeps the vast majority of its residents in a state of deep distress and high anxiety. High anxiety equals high cortisol. High cortisol negatively impacts our executive functioning. For example, the inability to pay attention, a decrease in visual perception, feeling agitated and unorganized memory loss, and the loss of emotional regulation and rational thinking. This helps to explain why so many of us jammed into supermarkets to fight each other for the right to hoard inordinate amounts of toilet paper when the dangerous and unnecessary pandemic lockdowns were implemented. When stress is chronic and cortisol is raging, we make exponentially more mistakes. We struggle to complete tasks, we lose concentration, we forget basic information, and we repeat ourselves in conversation. Since life itself in this corrupt culture is a source of relentless anxiety, most of us live in an altered state of inefficiency and confusion. However, this reality is so normalized that it's become invisible, and we often think we've got it good. After all, look at all these neat gadgets we own and get to stare at all day, every day. Think about it. We are alive because our ancestors were the ones who used anxiety and hypervigilance to survive. The more casual or reckless early humans weren't around long enough to pass on their genes. So here we are, 
hardwired with a hair trigger fight or flight response and we're stuck in a world in which simple acts like breathing air or visiting a doctor are unhealthy or possibly lethal. Translation, we are the ideal subjects for a grand social experiment. If you were a member of the elite class, the proverbial 1%, wouldn't you prefer that the masses were pliable and easily controlled? Why wouldn't you rig circumstances in such a way as to keep billions of potential challengers off balance, frightened, and divided? What better way to maintain power and control than to implement an insidious form of group manipulation? It's what cult leaders do. It's what domestic abusers do. It's what dictators do. And what are those in power if not abusive and narcissistic sociopaths? I know. The easiest and most alluring path for you right now is to dismiss me as a conspiracy theorist. Life is far more palatable, you believe, if you choose denial, if you choose to believe those on top are not abusing you. You may even tell yourself that people never do things like create an oppressive and unfair system just to keep their fellow humans subdued and passive. If that's your premise, let's explore it for a few minutes. Would the good folks who run things in God's country ever coerce people through abusive behaviors? You might want to ask the detainees at the U.S. prison in Guantanamo Bay, because there, the U.S. hired two CIA contract psychologists to create a program that used violence, isolation, and sleep deprivation on more than 100 men in secret sites some described as dungeons. Tactics included waterboarding and cramming men into small confinement boxes. The idea was to induce so much chronic stress it would break their resistance. Human Rights Watch has documented other devious and abusive red, white, and blue techniques paid for by your hard-earned tax dollars. For example, mock executions by asphyxiation. They also put prisoners in stress positions. They hood them during questioning. They deprive them of light and auditory stimuli. And they use detainees' individual phobias, such as fear of dogs, to induce debilitating stress. Meanwhile, the land of the free incarcerates more people than any other nation on earth. The Center for Constitutional Rights reports that such prisoners are repeatedly abused by their guards, fellow prisoners, and an ineffective and apathetic system. They suffer beatings, rape, prolonged solitary confinement, meager food rations, and a frequently denied medical care, all in the name of punishment and pacification. Perhaps the best comparison for America's brutal molding of its citizens is domestic abuse. The United Nations defines domestic abuse as a pattern of behavior in any relationship that is used to gain or maintain power and control over an intimate partner. Again, a pattern of behavior in any relationship that is used to gain or maintain power and control. Abusers, says the UN, use actions or threats of actions to influence others. This includes any behaviors that frighten, intimidate, terrorize, manipulate, hurt, humiliate, blame, injure, or wound someone. Are you frightened 
by lack of financial stability? Are you terrorized by the threat of sexual assault or injury by medical error? Does the possibility of eviction, homelessness, and poverty manipulate you into making choices you abhor, choices that violate your deepest values and individual freedoms? If you declare the system is broken, just about everyone will agree with you for one reason or another. But what if it's not broken? What if it's running exactly as it's designed to run? A minuscule percentage of humans make the rules and thus reap virtually all the material rewards. The rest of us suppress our desires, our individuality, and our dreams in the name of survival in its most meager sense. We're wounded and intimidated into submission, too programmed and fearful to even think about rebellion, let alone solidarity with all the other victims. This entire segment, I know, may temporarily give you a greater sense of doom, but there is good news. In fact, there's not just good news, there's great news, because literally all it takes to flip the script is for each of you to change your mind. It doesn't have to be like this. In fact, it can't be like this once we take off the blinders and see the ugliness of our current reality. Then it becomes time, obviously time, to individually and collectively create our desired reality. As Dr. Jessica Rose said in Postwoke episode number 15, let your fear dissolve and come back to life. And on that note, I'll see you on the front lines. I'll be right back with my story of the week. Have you ever randomly remembered a person from your past? Not someone with whom you were close, but a unique acquaintance. This recently happened for me. I was thinking of a guy named George who lived in my neighborhood back in the day. We weren't close and we've long since lost touch, but I can recall three colorful episodes in which he played a role in my life. So let's begin with act one. George was about a year younger than me and we shared some physical similarities, dark brown hair and eyes, athletic build. George was taller and broader, but you could see why a cop might mistake me for him, at least from a distance. I was 19, walking home with my friend Mario after visiting his female cousin Geraldine. Geraldine and I were somewhat, sort of, entangled, as they now call it. It was fall, so I was wearing a black, my black leather jacket. I was 19, so I still had a full head of thick curls. About a block away, a cop car was moving in our direction. The driver slowed down as they passed, and as quickly as you could say, three, two, one, he whipped into a U-turn and pulled up next to me and Mario. I was waved over to the passenger side window and asked to show ID. As I looked for my wallet, I inquired about what's going on. We got some calls about a punk with dark curly hair wearing a black leather jacket, the cop explained with a smirk. After a cursory glance at my ID, I was told to stay out of trouble, and the cops pulled away. Once they were out of hearing range, Mario and I smiled at each other and simultaneously said, George. Act 2. By the time the following winter arrived, George had cemented quite a local reputation as a frequent and successful street fighter. 
my group of friends and his group of friends was semi-friendly. We played sports, occasionally hung out, but we were young men. This, of course, meant that everything had to be unnecessarily fraught with conflict and competition. One particularly frigid night, I was outside with two cohorts, Frank and Kenny. We opted to look for one of the local building basement rooms where we could hang out without risking frostbite. As we approached the door to one such room, we could hear, hear blaring music and smell a blend of tobacco and weed. <clears throat> we knocked. George answered and welcomed us in to join him and about eight of his buddies. They had an old school boombox on full volume, physical graffiti. The vibe was chill, and before long, George and I were having one of our standard Stones versus Led Zepp debates. That's when I noticed something sketchy happening. In George's crew was a guy, also named Kenny, who openly disliked my friend Frank. Kenny prompted a few of his pals to accidentally shove him into Frank. The first time, Frank laughed it off as a mistake. No harm, no foul. The second time, Frank responded angrily. Within seconds, Frank and Kenny were throwing volumes of punches. I did not like the odds. Sure, I was the oldest guy in the room, but George had eight allies. I had two. Frank was busy fighting, and my Kenny was notoriously timid. I braced for the worst. When Frank knocked down the other Kenny with a hard right hand, George and others broke it up to save their dude. Frank came over to stand with me, gasping for air. After whispering with Kenny, his Kenny, George signaled for the music to be stopped as he approached Frank. I moved in close to listen. Kenny can't continue right now, George coolly told Frank, so he asked me to finish the fight for him. Without a millisecond of hesitation and without consulting me, Frank pointed my way and said, sure, as long as he can finish the fight for me. George was not the kind of guy to lose face in front of his boys. He was also not the kind of guy to rush into an unfavorable situation. His eyes met mine, and I reluctantly did what males are supposed to do. I nodded my head to signify that I indeed had Frank's back. Meanwhile, my heart was pounding, and I was cursing the bro code. George was bigger than me, an experienced street fighter. We were outnumbered nine to three. Frank was exhausted from fighting, and my Kenny was shitting his pants. I silently prayed that my established reputation as a martial artist would be the equalizer. Never mind, George said, looking at his friends. We wouldn't want to cost Kenny the chance to get even. He glanced back at Frank. He'll bust your ass next time. Frank knew better than to speak as I yanked on his coat sleeve. Let's go, I said. Me, Frank, and our Kenny backed our way out. The door was closed, the boom box restarted, and I thanked my lucky stars. Act 3. About two years after that, we had all grown into more individual, independent lives. Still, it was not entirely unusual for my friends and George's friends to cross paths. One of those episodes still stands out to me. My friends and I heard about a free party in a lounge, in the lounge of a sleazy local short-stay motel. It was within walking distance, but we were already in my car, so I ended up driving us over to check it out. When we arrived, we found George and his crew were already there and already buzzed. We settled at a table that was positioned off to the side, slightly elevated. In other words, we had the ideal perch from which to view what transpired next. There was a third group of young men present that evening. 
We didn't know them, but they were also buzzed, and they had already sparked George's anger. Big mistake. In an instant, a legit barroom brawl was in full effect. As they say, it was like watching a movie. We stayed seated but alert. One of my friends calmly declared, it ain't our fight, I'm not jumping in. I nodded in agreement while marveling how George was punching out anyone who stood before him. Then it happened. A chunky dude on the unknown team recognized that George was a formidable foe, so he grabbed a chair and snuck up on him. Cue the slow motion. We all screamed, look out! But it was too loud in the lounge and too late for poor George. The chair landed awkwardly. The bottom of one of the legs struck George on the side of the head and down he went. My friends had seen enough and expressed their desire to leave before the cops showed up. I agreed, but I couldn't take my eyes off George. He struggled to his feet as Patty, his girlfriend, screamed at the sight of all the blood. My eyes locked with George's, and I told my friends they'd be walking home. George took off his shirt and wrapped it around the head wound before stumbling over to me. Please get me to the emergency room, he gasped. Three minutes later, he and Patty were in my back seat as I sped toward the old Astoria General Hospital. The emergency room was pretty empty, and George was immediately taken in. Patty sat with me a bit, and I did my best to assure her that he'd be okay. I had seen the chair skid down the side of George's head instead of landing dead on. By a matter of millimeters, he avoided a concussion and possibly being knocked out cold. I didn't tell her all of that, though. She was upset enough, so I just stuck with my promises that her guy would be fine. When they let George's girlfriend in to see him, I nodded off in the waiting room chair. It was about 2 a.m. when I felt Patty's light tap on my shoulder. She was standing with George, his head wrapped in a thick bandage, the bloody shirt back on his torso. Let's get you home, I said, and off we went. When I dropped them off, I got a sincere hug from Patty and then another from George. Thank you, brother, he said. I owe you one. Nah, I smiled. You would have done the same for me. George nodded his agreement, and I headed off to face the daunting tax task of finding a parking spot at that time in the morning. Me and George were good from then on. You might even have called us friends. Epilogue. I parked far from home. So being a good son and also not wanting to be awakened too early, I left my dad a note so he'd know where to find the car when he got up. My plan backfired because there was my dad at maybe 9 a.m., maybe earlier, urgently shaking me awake. What? I growled, with, but his serious expression snapped me to attention. Why is there blood on the car, he asked, before adding, are you okay? It didn't take much to process that when George got into my car at the hotel, he must have had blood on his hands. I told my dad the best version of this story I could conjure up on a Sunday morning with so little sleep. He somehow somewhat half believed me and clearly took solace in the fact that it wasn't my blood. We agreed to not tell mom. As soon as he left my room, I fell back into a deep sleep. The take-home message of this story is the take-home message of post-woke. Keep your guard up. Well, I try my best to be just like I am.